0: Hey, welcome. You're listening to the Alex Valley Podcast. Turn a new leaf over with me as I learn everything I can about the literary industry. I'm an aspiring author drafting my first manuscript, figuring it all out as I go. Today I'm reviewing Natasha Madison's self-published romance novel, Mind to Hold, a Southern Wedding series. Mind to Hold is the only self-published title in my initial potential comparative title to be read list, and it shows, which is kind of a bummer, because I was hoping this book was going to show me that self-publishing was a serious contender for how I might manage my yet-to-be-finished manuscript. But all is not lost, my romance reading sisters, because this book has taught me a lot and sent me down multiple learning streams that were fascinating and illuminating and that is what I spend the large majority of this podcast talking about. I think the most interesting thing about this book is the author. Why? Because Natasha Madison has written a massive number of books. Amazon.com suggests it's up around 113 titles. Goodreads indicates she's authored 65 distinct works. And I've found another website that suggested it was 89 Now, as you can imagine, this unpublished aspiring author wanted, nay needed, to know more about this mass manufacturing machine called Madison. But like so often is the case with romance authors, I suspect she's writing under a pen name because the publicly available blurb that follows her around is omnipresent online. From her own website, to her author's Goodreads page, to Amazon and her many socials, including a private Facebook readers group aptly named Natasha Madison's Maniacs. The group holds 5,862 members, including myself, unashamedly stalking her in an attempt to figure out how she has written at a minimum 9 books every year for the past 7 years, or at a maximum 16 books each one of those years. I mean, come on, how is that even possible? Here's what Natasha Madison wants you to know about her. When Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author's nose isn't buried in a book, or her fingers flying across the keyboard writing, she's in the kitchen creating gourmet meals. You can find her in four-inch heels, no less, in the car chauffeuring kids, or possibly with her husband scheduling his business trips. It's a good thing her characters do what she says, because even her Labrador doesn't listen to her. Dismayed, I was about to give up on finding any really good background on medicine, and then I had a moment of divine intervention, or more likely a nudge from the collective conscious. Same thing, really. I wondered if she'd done any podcast interviews. And as it turns out, she had. I spent the next 55 minutes listening to Steph's romance book talk, YouTube channel. Well, I I listened to the dialogue in between all of the hosts' unnecessary laughter. Don't get me wrong. As I am finding out, podcasts are hard, and I take my hat off to Steph for putting herself out there and building an audience base of 4,700 subscribers. Nice work, Steph. Keep going. The podcast was illuminating, offering all the background Madison's self-written online marketing content doesn't offer. That in itself is a great lesson. People like me, people who are years, actually correction, decades behind people like Madison, are interested in their backgrounds and their writing journey. So I must make sure I add that information into my marketing materials when I, fingers crossed, get to a point in my journey where I actually have wannabe writers googling my name. One can dream. But I can't quite work out the chronological order of things from this interview. Madison says she wrote her first book in July 2016 after taking a month off work to write it. Then she goes on to say, on returning, she let her boss know she was quitting and would finish up around September. That doesn't correspond with her statement about working a day job for three years while she moonlighted as a writer, unless she is referencing her time blogging, which must have occurred before she wrote her first book, while she managed a day job. Madison wrote and self-published her first book in 2016 on a dare, seven years ago. Something So Right was the first in the Something So series, like so many successful writers. Yes, you heard me correctly. Even though I gave this book 2.2 stars, I still think Madison is a successful writer. She has been writing full-time with no need of a proper day job for at least the last seven years. She started writing while working full-time in a non-writer job, moonlighted as a writer for three years of her becoming an author journey, and then quit her day job and started writing full-time. That, to me, equals success. I got an inkling she was doing some sort of accounting or financial administration. When she let her boss know she would be leaving, she offered to, quote, come in one day a week to do the accounting and stuff, quote, end. End. So Madison quit after taking a month off to write her first book. This alone bamboozles me. One month, Natasha? One month is all it took for you to write an entire book? I'm on my second year of writing my manuscript, and I'm only halfway through. On completion of her first novel, she says she quit her job to focus on writing her second book. Something so perfect. Madison comes across very humble in the interview. Her answer to the question, are you traditionally published, independently published, or are you a hybrid of both, is answered with, quote, no, God no, nobody wants to publish me, I'm an indie author, end quote. A response that results in the interviewer losing her laughter shit and cackling away in what I thought was actually a rather rude reaction to Madison's somewhat muted reply, Or maybe that's just me projecting my hopes and dreams, being dashed, that self-publishing is not the legitimate route I had hoped it would be. Don't get me wrong, it's plan B, and yes, I am well aware it's how Colleen Hoover started out. Madison fronts as a much more demure version than the dressed-in-hot-pink-with-plunging-neckline character featured on her website. She does admit early on to completely forgetting about the scheduled interview, and that may be a part of the reason for her looking so vastly different from her polished website self. I mean, why wouldn't you do a photo shoot and get some next-level shots taken of you if you're launching yourself as a brand? I know I'm really looking forward to that bit, if it ever comes. I never get dressed up. It'll be a nice change. And then I can be entertained by all the people who meet the real me as I watch their disappointment at my non-made-up face and hair situation. Madison suggests she prefers indie publishing. I must point out here, it doesn't sound like she has experienced the traditional side of publishing, so I guess her preference for an indie way of life is skewed. That's me just being real, okay? When Steph pushes her on her aspirations and if traditional publishing is desired, Madison's response is mixed. Quote, "I don't well see, I don't, probably not." End quote. Later on, she says, quote, "I don't know, I just haven't even thought about it, to be honest. End quote. I call BS here. I cannot believe a writer of 89 or more romance novels isn't thinking about the commercial realities of their situation and what life would be like if she was picked up by one of the major publishing houses and in turn had sold a far greater volume of books. I do totally get her statement about being, a f- being in full control. She manages every aspect of her book development, cover design, editing, everything. She says she, quote, Kind of likes doing her own thing, if that makes sense. Likes setting her own timelines and stuff like that, end quote. Perhaps the lower royalties she received, if she published traditionally, would actually net out at a lower return to her than what she's making now. Who knows? Mind to Hold is one of Madison's more recent books. She states she was a pantser up until COVID hit, and then from March 2020... She has plotted. At one point in the interview, she admits to hating sport. But then earlier on suggests sport romance is one of her focus subgenres. This didn't make sense to me. Why would someone write about something they hate? But then I looked at her Amazon ratings for a book called Only One Kiss, an ice hockey romance that she published in 2020. It's ranked 192 in the niche segment of Sports Fiction. Sports Fiction sits under the category Literature and Fiction, and then subcategory Genre Fiction, and finally under the niche segment Sports Fiction. This is a completely different categorization to where romance novels sit. And by doing this, this book has achieved a significantly higher ranking than Mind to Hold, which sits at 1,086 In the romance comedy category. Granted, Only One Kiss has been available for sale for two whole years more than mine to hold, but it got me thinking, surely the sports fiction genre is a smaller pond than the ocean that is romance comedy. My research suggests there is an estimated 1 million new books made available on Kindle every year. The Romance category itself is estimated to have over 1 million titles. So you can understand why Madison may choose to code her books to different niche segments. While grossly underestimated, my Kindle does report on the number of titles per category. Uh, If we use these numbers, uh, we can see that Mind to Hold needs to beat out 56,085 romantic comedy titles to get into the top 100, or 55,582 titles in the niche literature and fiction romance category. Either way, that's a lot of competition. Whereas Only One Kiss fights it out in the niche sports fiction pond, with only 12,603 titles to beat. And this, my writer friends, is the game we must play should we want to get into that all-important top 100 circuit. If you play the literary game this way, however, you are forced to write in genres you may dislike. I, for one, am happy to write what I want to write and suffer the consequences of drowning in a sea of romance. Actually, that sounds quite nice. So, my research led me here to better understand the Kindle marketplace I found something called k at the same time that I found a specific blog from TCK Publishing, which was the most useful for me to understand. It breaks down Kindle categories and how the whole ranking system works. Here's what I think I've learnt from all my research. You want to be on Kindle's top 100 bestseller list. These are the books you have to pay for, and up until recording this podcast, I didn't realize that Kindle also had a top 100 free bestseller list, which I assume is the Kindle Unlimited and titles on promotion for short periods of time instigated by authors wishing to grow their readership. Each category has its own top 100 bestseller list as well, one for romance for example and one for literature and fiction. Some categories have subgenres, niches, so small that there are less than a hundred titles in them. So just by publishing a book in that niche genre, your book can be in a top 100 list. This means the more titles there are in a category, the more competition there is, or the harder it is for you to get into the top 100. k data can help here to give us an understanding of the size of each Kindle category, for example, Literature and Fiction, has 3.7 million titles as at December 2022, whereas Romance has 1.5 million titles. Seems like Romance would be the more attractive category when compared to the number of titles in Literature and Fiction, but that changes once you learn that Literature and Fiction has subcategories and then a further categorization of niche segments. The romance category stops at subcategory level. It has one less level to categorize the titles coded within it. This means you can get into a smaller pond by coding your book to literature and fiction, and by doing so, you are more likely to be able to get into a top 100 of that particular niche segment. I've spent a large proportion of my life working in marketing. When I was a kid at university, I chose a double major in media studies and English. I wanted to be a journalist and I'd failed miserably at getting into the most desirable communications institution that, on completion of my education, would guarantee entry into said desired vocation. Plan B was signing up for a humanities degree. This was driven by the promise that doing so would unlock the mysteries of advertising and the magic of movies, two things I have salivated over my entire life. I'm not kidding. I love a good TV ad. I will revel in the poetry of how it conjures emotion in the viewer. I will clap and celebrate my congratulations to the artists who created such beauty and commercial mastery. Same goes for movies, especially rom-coms, my favourite. So many people write off the romantic comedy genre as shallow drivel, but there's so much depth and effort there. When these movies are crafted properly, when the theme has strength and the tone is conveyed successfully, they are superb. At the end of my degree, I had deconstructed the media to such a level that all the mystery and magic woven into movies, And good television adverts had been replaced with science and structure and frameworks. Black and white data points that make something good. I'd replaced the mystery and magic with the elements that, that, when sutured together, become something else. Something ethereal. Something much bigger than the sum of the parts. And I couldn't see the magic anymore. I couldn't unsee the elements. I'd lost the romance of the things I loved. When I started my writing journey, I thought there was one way to publish and one way only. I dreamt of being discovered, like a beautiful young girl, plucked from a crowd destined for supermodel stardom. I figured I'd be picked up promptly by one of the big four. I'd have had complete and utter validation via winning various awards resulting in media coverage suggesting I was an overnight runaway train of success. Sure, I'd heard of self-publishing, but that was for charlatans. Self-publishing was the epitome of the common statement, those who can do, those who can't teach. Self-publishing is what you do because it's the only option, because rejection was the only response offered by literary agents and publishing houses. But over the course of writing this podcast and falling down multiple internet holes about the indie world, I've come to realise I was so wrong, so unbelievably wrong. I've also just had an amusing thought. If those who can do and those who can't teach, imagine how tough it must be for the people who teach self-publishing. The traditional publishing industry is huge. It's regulated and thwarted by the multiple hands that touch a writer's art as it crosses the coming-of-age threshold from manuscript to book, a long and arduous value chain. It's a tried-and-true go-to-market system with bureaucratic infrastructure and screeds of resources. It's like a fat old rich man who is exceedingly happy and loves a good 12-course degustation. And there is nothing wrong with that. That is capitalism. That is trade. That is sales and marketing. Hard graft. Growth. Drive. Dreams that become reality. And let us not forget, it's also a whopping number of happy readers. That fat, rich man was created by multiple generations of growth and construction, resulting in a mega metropolis we know today as the traditional publishing industry and there's nothing wrong with it. It is what it is because of how it came to be. Like all monolithic industries conceived from the ashes of pre-industrial society, disruption is rife, threatening uncontrollable change where there was once control and order. Enter the indie world, the era of self-publishing, the flood. Digital publishing has brought down the trad wall, opening up a new channel for wannabe authors, one without the traditional barriers of entry. A revolution, if you will, and there is nothing wrong with it, except, in my humble opinion, the obvious disadvantage When one knocks down an industry wall, one removes the doorway that once managed the flow of traffic. With the wall gone, one can no longer control who enters. Inevitably, one's house becomes full, then overcrowded, and then untenable. This leads to a correction. The addition of a system to make the unmanageable manageable. The indie house is full, nay, it is collapsing under the weight of biblical-like floods, floodwaters full of low-quality literature in desperate need of an editor, or perhaps more appropriately, an agent's rejection letter. And this is the reason why traditional publishing will always exist. It's also the reason why correction systems like Goodreads exist offering up a way for readers to swim through the contaminated rapids, avoiding the pockets of sewage. Although I am aware, like Amazon bestseller Goodreads ratings are being gamed by those who choose to be unethical. I guess what I am saying is, trust and credibility are important factors for readers seeking to purchase a book. I, for one, expect a certain level of quality for my hard-earned dollar. And if that isn't delivered, you'll be hard-pressed to find me investing additional dollars in your trade. In saying all of the above, someone, in fact a lot of someones, are doing just the opposite of producing high-quality self-published books, and readers, who are not like me, are buying them. Madison is obviously selling a lot of books, so that means there's a reader market out there happy to forgo substantial theme, tone, and setting for erotica. I guess that's an acceptable trade-off for these readers, and that's okay too. There's nothing wrong with filling a gap in the market and delivering what your target reader wants. I say, good on you, Madison. So this is where I lose a little bit of the mystery and magic of writing. This is the part where I realise, just like advertising, sex sells. This is the part where I can see the data points, and the concept of formulaic, speed romance writing, void of artistic mastery. And it saddens me. I feel like mum and dad are getting a divorce. I feel like someone ripped the band-aid off while simultaneously pulling my rose-coloured glasses from my face and stomping them into the ground. So, in conclusion, here is how I intend to proceed. I am writing a high-quality romance that will hit every single element that should be contained in a romance novel. My book will sell because its reader will be absorbed into its threads. For a fleeting 90,000-word-count moment, my readers will live in the tapestry I have created. They will escape their worlds, They will learn from the theme, and they will live the experiences of my characters. They will enjoy every sutured together formulaic data point of my expertly constructed creation through rose-colored glasses, the perspective all romance novels shall be read from, and importantly, how my readers come to hold my book will not matter. Indie, traditional, traditional. Some other platform I am yet to know. I'll leave that bit up to the universe. 47-year-old Madison starts writing a book by writing the blurb. Writing this before, not after she has a manuscript, which I find interesting. I wonder if this is possible because she has an established reader audience and doesn't really need to do much market research for the books she is writing. All she has to do is deliver on her Natasha Madison brand and ensure the three flames worth of spice are included. Madison's first step is very different to the process Nat Connors, the founder of KindleTrends.com, and also a self-published author, outlines in episode 97 of Sasha Black's The Rebel Author podcast. Basically, Nat breaks book research... Or understanding your market into four parts or layers from the innermost layer being content all the way to the last layer being mechanics the four layers are content blurbs covers and mechanics Nat starts his market research for his books at content and works out to mechanics through layer 2 blurbs and layer 3 covers because each layer relates to the other He suggests that market research is always about understanding the relationships between each of the layers. Quote, Covers on the outside make a promise to the reader, a promise usually about genre. That promise is then developed in the blurb and is fleshed out. And you're telling the reader how they're going to get this genre fiction. And then it's delivered in the story itself the content. So effective genre research is about understanding each of these four layers and how they're related. I subscribe to Nat's approach. It just makes more logical sense for me and how my brain works. Madison's process is visually focused. Quote, I'm so visual that I can't do anything without seeing, unquote. In between mental plotting while driving and in the shower she picks up inspiration from Pinterest boards she's creating. She designs a cover before typing a word and selects a theme song that she plays on repeat while writing the blurb first. Yes, all of that before one word of her manuscript is typed. I assume Madison uses the blurb as a kind of pseudo-outline giving her some guardrails on what the book is about. And finally she plots chapter by chapter, to be ready to commence writing. An interesting process, isn't it? It Makes me think I need a theme song. I do have a whole Instagram collection of audios saved, but that's not the same, I think. Let's talk tone. Google states one of the definitions of tone is the general character or attitude of a piece of writing. In my own ranking table, tone is the mood implied by the author's word choice, the way the text makes the reader feel. This book made me feel basic. I felt like it was stupefying me. The following are a couple of excerpts to explain what I mean. Chapter 9 She pulls out the stool and sits down next to me. Not sure if they have enough booze to share with you, I joke with her, and pour myself another glass. My hand picks up the glass, and I wince right before I swallow down the whiskey. End quote. My hand picks up the glass? Really? How else would he pick up his shot? With his foot? Maybe his mouth? This is an erotic romance after all. Foot fetish, anyone? This is where some level of credit needs to be given to the reader. There is some tacit knowledge here that every human being is able to leverage to comprehend the situation. Instead of being edited out, these unbelievably obvious statements are speckled throughout the book, and it makes the narrators sound basic. Here's another one. The repetition of the same word in short succession happens all the way through the book. I'm pretty sure running the manuscript through a writing grammar software package like Pro Writing Aid would have picked up on some of this, if not all of it. This would have increased the quality of the book significantly and make the book so much easier to read. But I suspect Madison is playing a low-quality, High volume game with her writing, and I take my hat off to her, because this is the first time I've seen book manufacturing at this scale, and with these types of time frames. I seriously didn't even think it was possible until now. Chapter 11 She turns to walk towards the back of the room. The smell of roses fill the room. End quote. And here's another one. The sun looks like it's going down, and the sky looks orange. This really made me cringe. Does it look like the sun is going down? Did Ace stand there and watch the sun racing towards the horizon? Or was it the sunset colours of just orange that gave it away? Apparently the sky looks orange. It isn't orange. It just looks orange. It's just such basic tone. I'd love to understand why the writing is like this. Is it because Madison rushes these novels to completion? I can only assume the quality is a direct result of the fact that she must have little to no time to edit and polish. It frustrates me so much. How about instead we rock out a Outside the light is low, the sun has splashed pink and orange watercolours over the garden. Here's another quote from the book. Putting the bottle of whiskey down and then the glasses, I grab the bottle and turn the cap, listening to the snapping sound and then pouring two glasses. This should make it better. End quote. I am literally crying. It hurts. All of the above should not exist. All that needs to be there is, quote, pouring two glasses of whiskey, I say this should make it better. End quote. Chapter 9 uses the word glass so many times I experienced physical facial cringe. I definitely think this author could do with a good thesaurus. I mean, even a few of these options would have been a nice change. Vessel. Cup. Shot. Liquor. Pain relief. For example, I pulled the vessel to my lips I pulled the shot to my lips. I pulled the pain relief to my lips. Hopefully you get the picture. Here's the last one because I can't do much more of this without having some sort of panic attack. I need help. She spins in front of me, showing me her back. Can you unbutton me? She moves her hair to the side so I can unbutton her. I get up and my hands shake right before I start to unbutton the first little white satin button. My heart speeds up, and all I can do is focus on one button after another. How many buttons are there? I ask. After I, pa- I get past ten, my eyes trying not to focus on the fact I'm getting really close to her ass. Too many, she laughs. End quote. Definitely too many, says this reviewer. Now I do realise I have no right or credibility to be offering up editing suggestions to a full-time author who has written and published such a large number of books. Books that are enjoyed by a reader audience I could only dream of having one day. I am actually in complete awe of Natasha Madison's productivity and I can only dream of being in her position one day. I know it's very easy to sit here and criticise someone who is actually putting themselves out there and having a go. I have no doubt when I finally publish my book I'll be faced with many did not finishes and one star reviews. It's part and parcel of being a writer and putting your work out into the world. You'll never please every reader. The point I'm trying to make with this review is I was disappointed with the tone. The plot was solid, and I think, again, in my humble opinion, with the right editor, or perhaps more time, this could have been a three or a four star book for me. I'm going to finish my editing rant by reading you s- a r- original scene in its original state, and then I will read a version that I've rewritten, to hopefully explain why I see such an opportunity to improve this novel. Quote, I hear her voice and turn to look at her. She stands there in her wedding dress. The minute the doors opened and I saw her, I couldn't even help myself. I leaned over and whispered to Joseph that he was a fucking lucky man. Her blue eyes looked like the deep end of the ocean does right before a storm rushes in, which should have been my first clue that something was up. Her eyes only get that dark when she is super pissed. But I just figured that was her nerves. She pulls out the stool and sits next to me. Not sure if they have enough booze to share with you. I joke with her and pour myself another glass. My hand picks up the glass and I wince right before I swallow down the whiskey. I look down at my hand. Seeing the knuckle bloody and scraped, I close it in a fist again and open it, feeling the tightness of my, in the skin. That always plays out differently in the movies. I shake my head and laugh. I didn't even know I was going to punch him in the face. End quote. And here's my rewritten version of what you've just heard. I hear her voice and turn. She just stands there, wedding dress and all. I'll never forget the surge in my chest when I saw her for the first time today. As she walked down the aisle, I couldn't Stop myself leaning over and whispering to Joseph. He was one fucking lucky man. Her blue eyes looked like the deep end of the ocean, right before a storm. That should have been my first clue something was up. Her eyes only get that color when all hell is about to break loose. But I'd ridden it off as nerves. She pulls out the stool and sits next to me. Not sure if they have enough booze to share with you. I joke, pouring myself another glass picking it up and wincing from the pain, then downing the lot. I make a fist, surveying the damage. The knuckle is bloody and scraped, the skin tight and swollen. That always plays out differently in the movies. I shake my head and laugh. I didn't even know I was going to punch him in the face. End quote. Finally, here's the things I've learnt from reviewing this book and learning more about the author, Natasha Madison. Number one, there is a thing called a content editor. This person is responsible for researching, proofreading, and publishing both traditional and online media. And yes, Madison has one of these, I'd be super interested to know who they are. Number two, the indie world is a world of many games. Here I can only assume Madison is playing a volume game, delivering in-demand, erotic romance novels. This is not a game I will be playing, therefore, mine to hold, is the first competitive title in my potentials list that is a hard no for me. I want to caveat that with the fact that I would be absolutely ecstatic to get the sales that Madison is achieving. Number three. This book has well over 2,500 reviews on Goodreads. At a price of four ninety nine US dollars for the ebook version, that equates to sales of thirteen thousand three hundred and ninety three US dollars. If Madison is receiving a seventy percent royalty, uh, which is one of the options that Kindle offers, it means that she's netted just under ten thousand US dollars from this book alone. Now that's a solid effort and a success story in my book. So to conclude, Natasha Madison's estimated earnings, if you take 89 novels as the number of works she has in the marketplace, and assume each of them has made her roughly $10,000 US, means she will have cleared almost $900,000 US. I guess that leads me to my last lesson, which is that money talks. Even I would probably consider writing erotic romance for that kind of money maybe. So that concludes today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my writing ramblings. You're listening to Alex Valley's podcast.